Just ahead of Thanksgiving, we get some insight on two key menu items, turkey and sweet potatoes. How do these items even get to your plate? Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. This week, we connect with two Farm Progress editors to talk about a couple of Thanksgiving staples, turkey and sweet potatoes. While turkey may have been on the menu at the Plymouth Colony for that first Thanksgiving, there's a good chance sweet potatoes hadn't made it to the table yet. Thank heavens they eventually did. Our turkey story comes from Sarah McNaughton, Dakota farmer, who profiled a North Dakota turkey grower. We learn about that business, how it raises birds, and the interesting processing setup available to this grower. Then we turn our attention to John Hart, Southeast Farm Press, who shares insight on sweet potatoes, which, by the way, mainly come from North Carolina. We talk about how they're raised and learn about an interesting breeding project in North Carolina State University, home to a lot of great sweet potato varieties, though this innovation did catch our attention. First up, let's talk turkey with Sarah McNaughton. Sarah, welcome to Around Farm Progress. How are you doing, Willie? I'm doing I'm doing well. It's we're walking our way right toward the holidays and we all know what that means. <laughs> Definitely. I don't know if we're more busy at work or busy on our personal lives, you know, pie baking <laughs> and planning and I kind of let my daughter do some of that, but then I always get this call. There's something you got to do. So, it's always fun. How about you? You know, it's about the same. I was just saying to somebody today that I always think it'll slow down and be a little less busy and then the next season rolls around and it seems to keep getting busier. So, that's just kind of how it goes. Well, we are talking about something seasonal today. Uh, you did a neat story in your November issue that I enjoyed reading, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that because, you know, all of us, this is an area that we don't cover very often. Um, it's turkeys. Oh, you know, many of us have to cover the turkey story about this time of the year, so you did. How did you get connected with this family? And then tell me about what you learned on this farm, and what's the name of the operation? Yeah, so it is the Wittenberg family's farm, and I'm actually very partial to the poultry industry myself. I always, I grew up uh, showing chickens and such in 4-H, and was actually a poultry judge in North Dakota, so I judge poultry um, from chickens and ducks and turkeys and all of those. So I was very excited to go out and head to this turkey farm earlier this year, which was a really neat opportunity. And um, Charlene Wittenberg is the main grower there. She runs a farm with her husband, and she's actually been involved in the turkey industry her entire life. She grew up in northern Minnesota on her dad's turkey farm there and then kind of branched off and started her own in North Dakota. That's pretty cool. I'm based in Minnesota, and I do know we're the number one turkey state, straight yes. up. We, we're quite proud of that, I guess. <laughs> but North Dakota's no, uh, no amateurs. They're producing a lot of birds, aren't they? Yeah, so um, I did look up these numbers ahead of time. So Minnesota usually uh, produces around 40 million turkeys annually, and South Dakota actually produces more than North Dakota with around 5 million annually. And then here in North Dakota, um, we have not 1 million birds produced annually, which is just from nine producers. So just nine growers in the state produce those million birds a year. Wow, that's uh, pretty intense, actually, pretty intensive farming. And let's talk about that for a minute, because... On the Wittenberg operation, um, one thing I wasn't aware of, and that's because I don't cover poultry very often, you know, this is not a year-round deal. Yeah, so um, it sounds like some growers, of course, like whenever we're talking about farm operations, it really is dependent on the growers and their farm. 
Um, some farms do run year round, but the Wittenbergs do just run February to November. So in February, they start up their big group barns and they have 13,500 chicks that come up and then they move them out to grow outs. And then two weeks later, they have their next batch of pulse. So they just kind of rotate them through. And then around November is when they kind of end their operation, close everything up for the year and then get everything ready to start again the next February. I see some benefits to that. One, I think what's really neat is that with that two-week layover on the barn, when they're bringing in pulse, they can do a lot of sanitation and really keep the disease down, right? They're putting them in a clean facility and moving them to clean facilities, which is really kind of cool from a biosecurity standpoint. But I also think that gives them through at least a couple of months to kind of get everything cleaned up again, repairs, because, you know, stuff does break down in a turkey operation. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of their barns have a lot of um, automation to them. So if you look in these pictures that are in the article in the magazines, you can see these fans and these curtains and all of those are controlled by um, computer automation. So they can run everything from their computer in their control room. Um, and so it's nice that they have that time to be able to refix any of those, set it up again, make sure everything's ready for the new batch of birds in the spring. And those systems are very nice, but they're also sensor dependent, and those sensors do need to be checked every now and then. Absolutely. Right. So the other thing about the Wittenbergs is they're predominantly organic, which is a growing market in the turkey business, even with a, a turkey that you you would get at this, you know, at your local Cub Foods or your other favorite supermarket. Organic is a choice on the label more and more. So it's a big opportunity for them, right? Yeah, so they had talked a lot about how their decisions to do organic is they believe it's healthier for the birds. And of course, we know animals are healthiest in whichever way the grower is able to produce them the best, whether conventional or organic. Um, but they also have a really big marketing opportunity in the organic industry and really have the opportunity to make back some of their income. And especially with how expensive inputs are right now, we all know that it's nice to be able to see growers finding those opportunities to make a little more income back on their operations. Well, that is interesting. And obviously, we'll get to where they're processing, how their processing works, too. Now, mm -hmm. they do have one conventional barn, but they're treating those birds the same. Right. So they do try to just start off everything organic. Um, right off the bat, they all have the same organic certified bedding and organic feed. That's just that one barn that if they are able to um, treat any kind of issues that come up with those birds, they're able to treat them and still be able to market them without any um, organic labeling. And then the other thing they do in their organic operation, and actually I think with their conventional birds, they're pasture raised. I mean, there is there is outdoor space for the birds. Yeah, um, I'd actually never been on a turkey farm before I stopped out here. And like you mentioned, the biosecurity earlier, there's usually a lot of issues with biosecurity, so I can't always get onto those farms. But that was what was super cool is they actually have the same amount of outdoor pasture space as indoor um, barn space. So when I was out there, the turkeys kind of just follow you around they're very curious. They want to see what's going on, see who's in their barn, who's in their space. Um, and they just followed us around when we were walking inside, looking at the feed, and then we walked outside. They had this nice fenced off area. There was some grass, and if you know anything about poultry, they do tend to dig. And so there was a lot of dirt area around for them as well. And they also have shaded hutches out there as well, so they can be outside and get a break from the sun too. So it was a really cool operation to be able to see all of the thought that went into keeping good welfare with these birds. Yeah, it is pretty interesting what's going on in, in the turkey industry and more and more recognition of that need. And they are part of that, what is it called? The uh, Global Animal Partnership and they're a GAP3 level farm, um, which 
is pretty far along, pasture raised, organic feed, that kind of thing. They it was interesting. She said that they weren't higher than three because it just didn't make economic sense. Right. So um, I had actually never heard of this gap program until she talked about it. So I was very intrigued at um, how the levels and things were determined. And it seems to me that the higher you go, the more money you have to spend on inputs and making sure there's pasture space and you have to have less birds per square foot. Um, right now with their operation, the birds have absolutely plenty of space, of course, to move around, but they would have to expand the barns, expand pastures and have less birds in those barns and pastures. So they wouldn't be able to be making the same that they might make back from being a gap for is kind of what it sounded like from our discussions. It does make sense. And what the neat thing about the gap program is, is you can you can come in, we're a gap one, we're a gap two, we're a gap three. That just tells everybody what you're doing. You And then you get to make the economic choice um, with whether you want, like you said, invest in the bigger barns or invest in something in you know, some other fat facet of it. And then you can balance what you're trying to do with the market and the market will still reward you for being at least a gap three level, which is still a premium price. Right. And, you know, the other thing, too, is even with organic and these gap is they have different auditors coming out during the year to make sure that they have their grower plans turned in, that all of their inputs like their feed and their bedding or organic. And then also those gap auditors coming out to make sure that the birds are being handled in a safe and humane way. And so everybody can really just know how much love and work really goes into this specific grower. I think it's really interesting from this standpoint that, you know, you want strangers on your farm telling you how to run the business and they have made that commitment to do that. So I thought that was interesting too. Now the other side of this, and I think it's kind of fun, there's a 35 year history in their family of actually running a processing operation. Um, they, they, her father took on the opportunity, right? I mean, something closed, they lost a processor in that part of the, the region and he got to get, he pulled together some folks and started a processor. Yeah, I know. I had never, um, again, I heard, I learned a lot of stuff when I was out at this farm with this grower, which was really awesome to be able to do. Um, but yeah, like you said, they run the Northern Pride processing plant up in Northern Minnesota, and it is completely grower owned. So it started off with 32 growers 35 years ago, and it's been running ever since. I think that's really cool. And I get more and more of these stories. So keep your um, ears and eyes open to that concept to tell those stories. And it might even be worth revisiting that operation later to talk about that business. But this idea of growers taking on the challenges and um, and then also taking control of their own destiny, which I think is very interesting as well, which opened that up. Anything else you picked up from this, um, from this story? Yeah, you know, one thing that I did find out is when you guys are looking for your Thanksgiving turkeys, if you pay really close attention, the Charlene Wittenberg was talking about how a lot of their birds that are sold as whole birds actually are the hens. So you maybe think of your Thanksgiving turkey being a tom, but a lot of times it's actually those hens. And so if you look at them in the store, you can tell that toms are kind of longer and taller, and then um, the hens are going to be more rounded. So you can maybe pick out and see if you're going to be able to find a hen or a tom turkey in the freezers. The other thing, Sarah, that I think is real interesting, and it's something that I, I like to uh, keep expanding on in the podcast, as a young journalist getting out in the countryside, you did find out the one thing I like about this job the best. You got to learn things. Yes, definitely. You know, if I could know everything there was to know about the agriculture industry, I'd be fully set, I think, in my career for the rest <laughs> of my life. But there's always things to learn. Even 
knowing as much as I do about the poultry and the agriculture industry and the livestock markets, there's so much that you always learn. And it seems like every time I step onto a different operation, there's so much to learn about how that grower runs their operation and takes care of their animals. Well, like I always say, we have some of the best jobs in the business. We get to go out and play outdoors and meet really great people and learn about their operations. It's great. Yeah, I agree. Well, Sarah, great to talk to you today. Thanks for the education on turkeys. Uh, keep up the good work and uh, have a good, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you too. Great to catch up with Sarah McNaughton from Dakota Farmer and learn a little more about turkeys and how they're being raised. The commercial turkey business is fascinating. Now we turn to the next menu item on our show, sweet potatoes. John Hart, Southeast Farm Press, shares some insight on this tasty crop how it's raised, and as I mentioned before, a little about a unique sweet potato you might find in the store. John, welcome to Around Farm Progress. How are you doing? Doing great, Willie. It's great to be with you today. You know, it's great to be with you a little bit because we're talking about one of my favorite foods, and I don't just eat it at Thanksgiving, um, and that is sweet potatoes. They are a big deal in parts of the country, especially where you are, right? Sweet potatoes are a big deal in North Carolina. Yeah, right. You are. Like you said, it's I guess the big deal now, too, is it's not just for Thanksgiving anymore. I mean, most of the restaurants serve it, either baked sweet potatoes and they have sweet potato fries. A lot of restaurants do that. Sweet potato chips. And most of them come from North Carolina because 65% of all sweet potatoes people eat today are from North Carolina. So it's the largest sweet potato growing state in the country. And it's actually the fourth biggest crop in North Carolina. So it's, it's pretty important, even though a lot of folks don't know about it. You know, there's an interesting thing. I'll, I'll diverge a minute, and this is sort of a journalist talking. I've always written sweet potato as two words, but I believe the industry would like us to use one word. Is that right? Actually, funny you should mention that. Yeah, the North Carolina Sweet Potato Commission likes that because it just is more scientific and it's more accurate. I guess the one thing is that a sweet potato is not a potato. It's a root vegetable. So they figure just have it one word, sweet potato. So so in the articles we've written, we we made it one word. You're right. I mean, if it's more scientific, I think that's something you should always look at. But I think that's funny. And yeah, it is a root vegetable. And it's got a higher, I mean, I don't want to diss on potatoes. We all love our potatoes too. Nutritional content of a sweet potato is different. Higher fiber, better nutritional profile, right? Exactly. Vitamin C, vitamin A, manganese, high fiber, and it's also beta carotene. So basically it really is, I say, it is the per perfect food. So that's why it's so popular these days. Well, yeah, and it's especially popular when you put it with brown sugar and marshmallows, but that's a different exactly issue. Right. Yes, I grew up with the canned sweet potatoes approach to casserole. Luckily, I've grown out of that, and that's been a good thing for our family. The other thing about sweet potatoes is let's talk about the agronomy of sweet potatoes. Obviously, they're they're a root vegetable, so they grow underground. They're lifted for harvest. But what are the, what's the pest profile? What, what do I have to do to get a good, healthy crop? Well, actually, you know, it's, the sweet potato really likes North Carolina soils. They like the sandy silt loam soils that are well-drained because they don't like to be in a lot of water. So the soil profile is really perfect for sweet potatoes. And I guess the, the big pest worry right now is the guava root knot nematode. That's kind of an, a, a pest that in a few years back was a, a real problem. But the good news is they're getting pretty good control of it now through cultural practices and not planting on fields with the history of guava root, not nematode. And, you know, if, if the potato has the disease, they isolate it and get rid of it. So they're working on it. And the other big thing they're working on, too, is, is developing new varieties that NC State is working on developing 
varieties that are resistant to guava root, not nematode. So, there, so there, that's, that's a problem that's hopefully going to be solved very soon. Yeah, it's always good. I mean, when we learn about a pest, if we can do the rotational trick or not plant where we've got the problem. Now, you yeah. mentioned that North Carolina folks are breeding. They're up to something a little interesting, aren't they? They are. Yeah, actually, um, uh, they, a couple of breeders, they got a gentleman at North, North Carolina State University, uh, they're breeding actually a, a purple sweet potato, actually two, <laughs> two new varieties that just were just released and are available now for farmers to grow if they want to grow them. One's called the, the Purple Splendor, and the other is called the Purple Majesty. And right now, there's no purple sweet potatoes growing in North Carolina. They're all mainly grown in, in California, a variety called Stokes. But they're hoping that if there's a market for it, if, if people want to buy them, farmers in North Carolina can grow them if they if they want to. So we'll see if, if there are going to be purple sweet potatoes planted in North Carolina next year. Right now, there, there aren't any. But, you know, the, the varieties are available if they want to plant them. Okay, that does raise some interesting questions. Why would people want purple sweet potatoes? I guess mainly it's it's like the, the foodies. <laughs> As you know, the foodie trend is really big. So a lot of the foodies like the purple sweet potato. They say it tastes like, some say it tastes like grape juice. <laughs> some say it tastes like wine. It just has a different different flavor and it's unique. And it's just kind of a, a unique food that foodies go for. It's popular at Whole Foods, some of those high-end stores. So right now, we'll, we'll, we'll see if there's a market for it. Well, yeah, and I understand. I mean, a lot of effort, but I'm sure breeders learn stuff whenever they do things like this anyway that do benefit the the parent crop. I understand that. Exactly. Uh, I guess it feels sort of like, though, the plant breeders of North Carolina State are now being driven by Instagram. So well, that's, that's an issue exactly. to maybe talk to them about. Right. And they they do mention that's only a very, very, very small part of their work. Most of their work is oh yeah is the orange sweet potatoes. And they want to make the all the potatoes that are beautiful and look good in the store and, of course, are resistant to the nematode and have all the nutritional profiles and the taste profiles. They they run them through tasting panels and just to make sure it's a good a good crop and a good a good result. Well, that's important. I mean, when we talk about sweet potatoes or we talk about um, some other crops that go directly to the market, right? I mean, sweet potatoes hardly touched. It's harvested, washed off, and sent off to the grocery store. It doesn't, it, it is what it is. I mean, yes, it wow. goes to processors too, but that's a food product. So you need to know what the consumer wants and whether you're meeting the consumer's needs. Exactly right. Yeah. And then, and actually, the, the big sweet potato right now is called Covington, and it was developed at North Carolina State University. And about 60% of all sweet potatoes consumed, if not more, all the Covington varieties. So that's 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 one of the big varieties right now that was developed at by NC State. So when I bought my sweet potatoes the other day to make my sweet potato casserole for Thanksgiving, they're Covingtons? More than likely they're More Covington. than likely, yeah. More than likely. Are, are another variety from Louisiana called Beauregard, because Louisiana is also a big sweet potato state. So more than likely Covington or, or possibly Beauregard. That's interesting. I mean, I, they got great names, I think. They do, yeah. <laughs> These products. I mean, we we don't identify anything in the store. I think it would be fun sometimes to know the exact variety for certain things that I buy. I mean, I know Yukon Golds and I know Russets, but it would be nice to know if they're Covington or Beauregard. I think that'd be kind of fun to see I, what I, I like better. I would like that too. John, when we talk about sweet potatoes, um, sometimes we get into the conversation, and when I was a kid, we also called them yams. Now, a yam is not a sweet potato, right? Right. Actually, that's one of the big things the industry is trying to get across. A yam basically is a, it's like a dry, starchy plant. 
starchy flesh. It's dark. It's light skin, and it's imported from the Caribbean. And of course, the sweet potato is orange. It's it, the, the flesh is a little softer when it's cooked. That kind of thing. So it's a totally different thing, and it's not a yam at all. Right. I suppose that do you think the yam is like a plantain to the sweet potatoes banana? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> I like both, by the way. I like plantain and I like banana. But but I just was curious about that because I think when we you know when you're kids they use the phrases they use the terms interchangeably and it was that was wrong. And so today when you're making that casserole, it is sweet potatoes. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, we're looking forward to that, and I hope you have a great Thanksgiving next week. And I thank you for your time, sir. It's good, always good to talk to you, and it's always good to get a little update on the crop we don't always hear about. Well, thanks a lot, John. Have a great day. Thank you, Willie. Thanks to John Hart for sharing that sweet potato story. And as for those purple ones, not so much. Always nice to catch up with editors and learn about their work in the field. I appreciate the work of John and his colleague, Sarah McDonald. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands as well as farm futures, beef, national hog farmer and feedstuffs, and the Farm Progress show and Husker Harvest Days. Before we go, I want to alert you to two special events to consider for your calendar in January of 2022. The Farm Futures Ag Finance Boot Camp and the Farm Futures Summit. Boot Camp runs all day January 19 and the summit runs January 20 and 21. We're in Iowa City, actually in the same hotel facility we've been in before, it just changed its name to the Hyatt Regency Coralville Hotel and Conference Center. You can learn more about the program, what's on hand and the initial agenda with speakers and more at farmfuturesummit.com. Visit the site and consider registering to be on hand in January. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.